this uh, this class, I actually just found out that a close friend of ours lost her mother today, um, Helene Rothenberg. Uh, this family is actually probably the family that's the reason that we have a yeshiva oraita. Um, her husband was the one who came up with the idea originally, and uh, they helped uh, to get us started, and among other things. And um, so we're going to dedicate this year in memory of Liba Kayla Bat Nachum. Uh, should be an ilui for, for her neshama. She actually isn't even in the ground yet. Uh, she'll be brought to Eretz Israel and hopefully buried <clears throat> tomorrow. Um, I think it's safe to say that with everything going on in the world, to see someone who lives a long life and sees children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it's not a tragedy. It's actually a celebration of a life. So it should be an ilui neshama. So I just came back from getting together with my son, Yair, who, Baruch Hashem, finally is out of Aza which as you can imagine is incredible. Um, had a pretty intense conversation with him and I basically am coming straight into this class. So you can imagine it'll affect, uh, you know, everything. But but I, I do think that the topic of this class, this discussion is very much going to relate to that. Um, you know, one of the interesting questions that we're all dealing with is it's clear that the events of October 7th um, are a seminal event. I mean, this is uh, there is the world before October seventh and the world after October seventh. There are certain watershed moments that clearly change one's perspective. And I think towards the end of this discussion, we'll get into what I mean by that. But but if you see the world in exactly the same way uh, beforehand and afterwards, then either you were seeing things much clearer than most, or you're missing something. But in order to do that, I want to share with you an Agatha. My understanding is that we're in the middle of a series on Agatha literature and how to study Agadot. And so I'm going to share with you an Agatha. Maybe three minutes of preamble, since I wasn't privy to the previous classes that you had on this topic. Um, you know that there are two parts to Torah. Everybody knows that the Torah really has two parts. Torah Shavuchtav, the written Torah, and Torah Shavuchtav, the oral tradition. And it goes without saying that the written Torah without the oral tradition makes no sense. The Torah says, uh, as an example, you shall tie them you know, on your hands and then for an adornment between your eyes. And if you take those verses literally, then, then we're all putting on tefillin wrong. And yet everyone in the world puts on tefillin the same way. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah what color tefillin are. Everybody's tefillin are black. I've never seen anyone suggest psychedelic orange tefillin, right? So there must have been an oral tradition, and there are many examples of this. What not everybody always thinks through is that the oral tradition also has two parts. There is the halakha and the agadah. Now, the halakha is very simple. The halakha is the what, where, when, and how of Judaism, right? What is it you're supposed to do? When do you do it? How do you do it? It's, it's the mechanics. And when the time came that we needed to write down the oral tradition, because the Romans were trying to destroy it and we were losing our oral tradition. So that's a, you know, it's a pretty straightforward recipe. Write down the oral tradition. It's a lot of work, but it's, but there is a second part of the oral tradition, which is the Agadah. And that, if the, if the Halacha is about the what, where, when, and how, the Agadah is about the why and the what for. And it's a little more complicated to write those things down. First of all, not everybody's ready to hear those deep ideas. Second of all, once once you put those ideas down on paper, 
you know, if you're, if you're coming at it from the wrong perspective, it becomes very easy to denigrate it, abuse it. So therefore, it would seem, and this is not Benny Friedman's opinion, this is the Velmagon, the Rajbah, the Rashbam, the Rambam, and the Mernavuchim, many different authorities. Therefore, the rabbis wrote it down sort of as a, as a form of allegory or story. And if you're not ready for it, so then you're hearing a nice story. And if you understand the recipe and you're ready for it, and you're, you're, you're ready to sort of begin to unravel the, the messages that are there, then you will discover the secrets of Judaism. And the Gemara we're going to do tonight is, is a good example of that. I should also point out that the word agadata is an Aramaic word. It's really the same as agada. Agada is from the Mishnaic period because most of the Mishnah is completed in Eretz Israel, so it's in Hebrew. And the agadata is from the Aramaic period, which most of which certainly Babylonian Talmud was in Babylon, and therefore they spoke Aramaic. Anytime you have a kamatz and an aleph, the ah sound, at the end of a word, it's the same as the hey hayidiyah, the definitive article hey at the beginning of a word. So, for example, ha-isha in Hebrew would be itata in Aramaic. Um, ha-bayit in Hebrew, the house, would be beta, the house. And agada in Hebrew, which are these sort of allegorical ideas, these theological ideas, is agadata in Aramaic. So I'm going to interchange those words, but they really mean the same thing from different periods. So, uh, and I would just add one last thing. I, I, again, I don't know what was mentioned in the series so far, but one of the saddest um, sort of mistakes that we've been making for quite some time, and, and if this was a class on the history of Agarita, then we could have a long discussion about this, but just it's worth pointing it out, is that very often people are studying Gemara, Talmud, and they skip the Agaric literature, or they don't take it seriously. Because they want to get into the halacha, they want to get it, get into the sort of the, the more intricate, uh, complex thought processes of halacha. And of course, there, I understand that because those are very different, to, difficult to discern, and it takes a lot of training to learn how they work. And generally speaking, when 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 people go to yeshivot, when they go to seminaries and higher institutes of Jewish learning, they only have so much time, so they'd rather spend their time working on those mechanics. Uh, but I think the mistake has been is that as a result, many people think that they're less important. And that's just not true. So if you get turned on to Agatha, as I did, I know if Blau was also very into Agatha, um, then this is something which is not that difficult to find source material to study. Okay. So this is a, a Gemara. I'm going to, uh, we'll see if I, uh, I'm going to share the screen. See if I get this right. It's been a while since I shared the screen. Um, one second. Okay. So if I did this correct, um, raise your thumbs if you can now see. Yeah, I got it. Okay, great. All right. So so this is a, a Gemara from Shabbat uh, 33. Uh, it could be that with some of you, we've talked about this before, uh, but here we're going to go through the Gemara. Th the way that I study Agarita, uh, th there are two things we're going to do here. One is we're going we're to study this Agarita and understand what its deeper message might be. But as, a, as an aside, we're also going to take a methodo methodological look and how one studies Agatha. Part of this is just the way I learned from my teachers to study in general. Like when I study a piece of Chumash, so the first stage is read it through, see if you can see what it's talking about. Then go back and see what bothers you, because unless you have good questions, you're not really learning. And then see if you can come up with a unifying idea that responds to all the questions. So first we're going to read it, then we're going to go back, understand it, and see what questions we have, and then we're going to see if we can put it together with an idea. So here we are. Um, Okay, Vamai, can you see my cursor going along the line? 
If you can raise your thumb, great. Okay. So this fellow of Yehuda, why was he called the head of the speakers, right? Because um, of the following story, right? It's not so important, but okay. The Yatfi Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Shimon uh, were sitting, you know, they were together. This Yehuda ben Gerim, it's interesting why he's called the son of converts. I'm not sure we'll get to that, uh, but that's a, an interesting discussion in and of itself. Um, notice he's not a Rebbe. He's less respected than the other three. Um, and they're all sitting around. Patach Rabbi Yehuda v'amras. Rabbi Yehuda says, how, how great are, are the actions of this nation. Now, Umazu, this nation, always refers to the Romans. Okay? The, there is a Jewish tradition that when an empire or a group represents evil, you don't, they don't deserve the respect of being mentioned within sort of the parameters of a holy book. Just as an example, the Eish Kodesh, who was one of the ra last rabbis of the Warsaw Ghetto, who gave secret classes and wrote down uh, his classes, his shiurim, his sichot, his discussions. They were discovered after the war in the rubble of the Warsaw Ghetto, and they were eventually published based on his introduction, and they're called the H. Kodesh, the Holy Fire. And he very often alludes to the evil of the Germans, but he never calls them by name. You will not find the word Nazi in that book. You will not find the word Germans. We're not going to lower ourselves to talking about them. So this nation always means the Romans. Okay. So Rebuta says, look, you know, you got to give credit for this nation. The Romans, they're unbelievable. Tiknu Shvakim, they created marketplaces or malls. Um, I actually, when I was in Rome many years ago, the first time, um, the forum is really where the first mall was actually created. The idea that, you know, before the Romans came along, so the blacksmith was in the back of his house and the shoemaker was in the back of his house. The Romans, who were very organized uh, structure, they would put all these sort of craftsmen and shops and marketplaces together so the person could go to one place and get everything, which was an innovation in those days and a, and a fantastic idea. So they came up with this. Tiknu Sharim. They built, they made bridges, which we kind of take for granted today, but, you know, if you study the history of New York City, for example, before the Brooklyn Bridge was built, it was not a simple thing to get from, you know, Manhattan to Queens. And then they built bridges and now you could just drive over the bridge. So this was a Roman idea or the Romans built incredible bridges. And they built bathhouses till the Romans came along. Imagine it's the winter time. You know, you're not going to go bathing in the freezing winter. People would go months without bathing. Now, all of a sudden, you could have heated water, you could be a mensch, you could take a, a bath. So that was a big deal. Now, you have to understand, this is the equivalent of someone standing on a street corner in, in, in Warsaw in 1940 and saying, you got to give the Germans credit. I mean, look at that autobahn. It's unbelievable. What a major highway. So Rabiosi looks at him like, that's unbelievable. You're praising the Romans, but okay, I'm not going to say anything. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, However, he couldn't hold it in. Rabbi Shimon Bayachai, right? Na na Rabbi Shimon Bayachai va'amar. Rabbi Shimon Bayachai says, okay, kol tiknu, like take a ride. Everything they built, lo tiknu el They only built it for themselves. Tiknu shvakin, yeah, sure they made malls. Lo shiv zanot, so they could find their prostitutes easier. 
Merchatzaot, la'adid ben zvan, because because it's because they want to pleasure themselves. Gisharim litol men mechas. They built bridges. They're not trying to help society. You know, they're just collecting taxes. Halach Yehuda ben Gerim v'siper divrayim. Now Yehuda ben Gerim shared sort of what was said this conversation. V'nishmaula malchut, and it got back to the authorities. Now it, it doesn't seem if you look at Rashi, talk different commentaries. It doesn't seem that he intended for the Romans to hear this, but once you speak about things, they have a way of getting out. And and we could have a whole discussion about, you know, the Rambam and Hilchodeo suggests that one of the 11 mitzvah, the basic mitzvah of ethical behavior and balance, you know, is forbidden speech. And he has three types of forbidden speech, right? Motzi Shemrav is when you lie about somebody and you say something negative. Lajanar is when you lie, is when you tell something true about somebody but it's negative. But rechilut, otherwise known as rechilus, gossip, is where is you have an innocent conversation. You know, I noticed my friend was wearing a blue shirt. So what could be forbidden forbidden about innocent speech? Because it can sometimes cause great damage if you don't have a good reason to say it. Okay. So it gets back to the Romans. Amru. So the Romans said, okay, Yehuda she'ilah, right? But Yehuda who praised us, okay? So yit'aleh. He'll, we're going to give him a promotion. We're going to make him an ex-lock. He's going to have powers now. By the way, notice that when the Romans speak about him, he's not Rebbe Yehuda. That was part of their mission, was to undermine the rabbinate and to denigrate the rabbis, right? Yossi Shishatak, Rebbe Yossi, who was quiet, Yigalelitzipori. Interesting that silence leads you to exile, right? If you don't take a stand, you're already in exile, but okay. Shimon Shegina Yare. But if Shemuel who denigrates the Roman Empire, we're not going to put up with somebody, certainly one of our vassals, denigrating Rome, he is sentenced to death. Right? Freedom of speech did not exist in the Roman Empire. And it is concerning Rabbi Shimon that the story gets interesting. Okay, so I'm skipping the English here. Azalhu, right? This is where we are. Azalhu Ubre. So he and his son, now it's interesting. Why does Rabbi Shemuel take his son? But okay. Azalhu, so he and his son, Tashu Bay Medrashan, they go and hide in the base Medrash. Now, you got to ask me an obvious question here. Like, Tashu Bay they go hide in the base Medrash, right? Obvious question here. If you're going to hide and you're Rafshim Bayrachai, you hide in the base Medrash? Oh, we'll never find him there. He's in the base Medrash. Like, that seems a little odd. Why are they hiding in the base Medrash? Okay. Kol yoma all day, have a de betu rifta vakuza demaya vakarchi. So his daughter, and there's one opinion, was his wife. Every day they bring him a loaf of bread and a pitcher of water. Okay, and 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 this is what they ate, right? Uh, they would eat this. That's also an interesting question. Why do I need to know what they ate? You know, you don't find like again. This is. In an oral tradition that is being preserved, let's say by Ravina and Ravashi, or the Amorayim who edited the Talmud, certainly the Bavli, by around the year 500. It took them 30 years. They were very careful about what they wrote down. Every detail here is important. So why do I need to know what they ate? Okay, right? Itakiv um, Gzerata. So when the when the decree gets more serious, or presumably the Romans are, you know, sort of stamping out, they realize they, they have a rebellion in the making and they're determined to end it. And they realize they're now in danger. They're going to find them. 
Amar Lebre, so he says to his son, Nashim Datan Kala Lan. You know, the women, they're 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 delicate. Right? Dat is all about relationships. The first time I find dat knowledge uh, as it relates to human beings is and Adam knew Eve in a biblical sense, and she gives birth to Kain and Hevel. So the relationship that women have, right, it's easier to break them. So the topic for tonight is not the difference between men and women, although that's a very interesting topic here. Um, the Gemara didn't, they weren't even aware of the question of, you know, feminism, equal rights. It wasn't a concern for them. There was no political correctness. Men and women are different. And one of the ways that they're different is we don't want women to be captured by the Romans. Okay. And we don't want them to be in a position where they know what's going on. So we got to get out of here. We're putting everybody at risk. That's one way to understand this. It's not so simple, but again, I'm not going to focus on that. Although later, if you're curious, we can talk about that. Dilma Mitzare Laumagalila. Lest they torture them and they reveal where we are. Right? Azlu Tashu Bamarata. So they go and hide in a cave. Now, there are two questions here. First of all, if you're so worried about the women, because they're going to be tortured and reveal where we are, so you're just going to hide in the cave, you're not really doing anything for the women. They're still going to torture them, just now they won't know where we are. Don't you think you should take them with you to hide with you? It's a little strange. But okay, right? Secondly, if Rav Shem was really concerned for this family, why did he take his son with him? His son wasn't, you know, in any danger. He didn't say anything wrong. So he takes his son and puts him in danger. Why? Okay. So they go and hide in a cave. Itrachish Nisa. Ibrilahu Haruva Veina Demaya. So Hashem makes a nace, a miracle, and a a carob tree grows up in the cave, ve'ena demaya, and a wellspring of water. Now, first of all, a wellspring of water in a cave is not such a big miracle. Like, there's lots of wellsprings of water in a cave. So, okay. Second of all, if you're going to make a miracle, I don't know about you, if I'm going to be in a cave, and it turns out they're going to be in a cave for quite a while, and you're going to make a miracle, I don't know, have a kosher Burger King. That's a miracle. And if you say, well, that's just silly, Eliyahu Navi hides in a cave and ravens bring him meat every day. He has barbecue every afternoon. Why does Rav Shem only get a carob tree? I don't know if anybody here has ever eaten carob. It's, it's not exactly a pleasant thing to eat. The Rambam talks about how carob kind of blocks you up. It, 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 it's, not, uh, it's not a balanced food. It's a super duper simple food. So, so that's an interesting question. Why are they being carob tree and water? And it's interesting to note in the basementers they're having bread and water. Now they're having carobs and water. There's a progression here from the basementers from the study hall of Torah to the cave, from the bread to the carob tree. Why is that? Okay. And they would every day, right? They would sit and take off their clothes and sit up to their necks in sand. And all day they would learn Torah, right? 
Michso Matzlu, and when it was time to daven, right, Sluye, right, Slotana, the rabbi, like, is, is davening. When it was time to daven, then they would um, clothe themselves and daven. And then right away they would take off their clothes. So that their clothes would not wear out. Right? There's a Pasuk uh, in, in discussing the um, the clouds of glory in the desert that says, Your clothes never wear out as a nace. Right? There's, there's an idea here that your clothes shouldn't wear. So they're sitting naked in the sand so their clothes wouldn't wear out. And they sit in this reality for 12 years. Okay? 12 years. They're sitting all day learning Torah. Three times a day, they get out of their sand holes and they put on their clothes. And then they get back into their sand holes and they just learn. That's all they're doing. And they have carobs and water. You can only imagine, you know, sort of what that means. After 12 years, Ata Eliyahu become a pitcha de marat. After 12 years, Eliyahu Navi comes and he, and, he get, and he stands up at the entrance to the cave. And he says, Amar, man lo de le bariochai de mit kesar ubatog derati. Who will let bariochai, in other words, Shimon bariochai, our protagonist, who will let him know? That the Caesar is dead and the decree is annulled. This is a very strange line. First of all, if 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 you've come to let Rav Shemuel know that the decree is annulled, why don't you just tell him? What does it mean? Who will let him know? Who will let him know? You let him know. <laughs> and second of all, if you're going to let him know, why don't you go into the cave? Now I'm curious here. In order to 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 to, to share, I, I I can't show the chat. So if I would show the chat, I would ask you a question. But I think it's my sense is that people would prefer to see the text. But um, it's an interesting question. Um, this may sound familiar to some of you. Eliyahu Anavi, right, coming to the entrance of the cave, but not going in. And that's because on Daf Gimel, literally the second folio of the entire Talmud in Brachos, there's a well-known, well, it's well-known because I know it, but um, of, of, of Rabbi, Rabbi Meir, who is, was it Rabbi Meir? No, it's Rabbi Yossi, sorry. Rabbi Yossi, who was walking in the ruins of Yerushalayim, right? And Nichras Lachat Mirchavot Yerushalayim, he goes into one of the ruins of Jerusalem, right? And Tadavin. And Bar Navi, Right, Vahimtinlo, and Eliyahu Navi comes and waits for him. This is on Daf Gimel Amid Aleph in Brachos, and, Eli, and and he says to him, and he waits till he finished, and then he says to him, right, you know, so he says Shalom Alecha, he says Shalom Alecha, they have a little Shmuzlach, and then he says, why did you go, right, Mitnema, why are you going walking to the cave? And Rabbi Yosef says, Leave Palel, and Eliyahu Navi says, well, you could you could have diving on the road, and Rabbi Yosef says, I was afraid I would get interrupted. And Eliyahu says, you shouldn't, you, you can't do this. And Rabbi says, I learned from this three things. I learned that you shouldn't go into a churva, into a ruin. And I learned that you can daven on the road, right? Okay. And and he has a whole discussion there about what. About, so one of the questions that comes out of the story is, why does Eliyahu Navi not go into the cave? Now, if you look in the Gemara there, 
The Gemara discusses why you don't go into a churba, why you don't go into a ruin. And the Gemara gives three reasons. One of them is because of shadim. Shadim may be some form of depression. If you go into a place of ruin, you can get depressed. It's not healthy for you to be in a place of ruin. One of the reasons is because if you go into dark, strange places at night, people are going to suspect you're up to no good. But the third reason, which is very practical, is because the churva is a dangerous place to go. It could fall down, it could fall apart. So the obvious question is, if you're Eliyahu Navi and you're trying to tell Rabbi Yossi that you shouldn't be going into the churva, then why don't you go in and get him out? I mean, imagine that you're, I don't know, you're on a, you're on a highway and uh, it's the middle of the night, you're on the way to the airport and you're, the, the driver suddenly goes, oops, I didn't have married. I, I didn't pray. And, and why did he wait 12 years before coming I'm to him? I'm just going to pull over for a minute to Davin. So he stops the car. Now it's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's an empty highway. He stops the car and he just gets out in the middle of the highway and he starts to Davin. In the middle of the highway. That's an extremely dangerous thing to do. You wouldn't stand on the side and wait till he finishes Davin. You would grab him and pull him off the highway. Why does Eliyahu Navi, there seems to be a habit of Eliyahu Navi not going into the cave. So we're going to have to come back to that. Okay. So who will let him know that it's time to come out? And the decree is annulled. Okay. Nafku. Now they hear this voice. They understand it's time to come out. So Nafku, they go out. And they see people are in the fields and they're sowing, right? They're, 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 they're planting and sowing. They're doing what farmers do in the field. They have to understand. This is like, I don't know if you ever a Zoha and you come to Oraita on Yom Kippur. At the end of Yom Kippur, we go up on the roof, overlooking Harabait, overlooking the Temple Mount. And we dive in there in the Ila. It's an unbelievable experience. And and you're with a hundred boys and, and they dance and they sing. It's incredible. And by the time you're done, and it doesn't matter how many years I've done this, it never ceases to inspire me. You finish Ne'ila, you feel like you're flying, like you're floating. If you would walk off that roof, right, and somebody would say to you, hey, you want to play a game of poker? You'd look at him like he's out of his mind. You just came from the holy experience. Like, so they just came out of the cave. They're learning Kabbalah for 12 years, right? So they can't handle it. They just see people are just, you know, they're they're trading stocks, right? And so they say, they're putting aside the world to come and they're dealing with, with the here and now. They're wasting their time on earning a living when they could be earning olam haba. It doesn't make sense. Every place they, they, they look at, it, it, it burns. In other words, they got like this laser vision and they're exploding things in the air. Okay, it's like a, it's like a new laser. So a heavenly voice comes out and says to them, You came to destroy my world? No, thank you. Go back to your cave. What's the bat call? What's going on? Okay. So they go back and they sit in the cave another 12 months. A year. Now this is interesting. Numbers are not accidental. Why are they there for 12 years? I mean, why after 12? There must be some significance. And the way I know it's significant, even though even if I hadn't noticed it, is that 
instead of it saying they stayed for another year, they stayed for 12 months, which is a year. 12 months is somehow significant. Amri and they say, The wicked are, are sent to Gehenim for 12 months. You don't spend more than a year in Gehenim, whatever that means. And, and we can come back to that too. And then Bemet, the heavenly voice comes out and says, Okay, let's try again. Go out of the cave. And they go out. So Rabbi Lazar still doesn't get it. And he's looking at things and I guess still exploding them. Rabbi Shimon now understands. And he's, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, wherever he's, 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 wherever Rabbi Lazar, his son, is, is burning things up. Right? So Rabbi Shimon would heal. Right? Okay. Amalobni. Like it, it, it's it's okay. We we don't need we don't need to do away with the people. Like we get it. That's okay, right? So now the sun was setting. The Malay shop and it's Arab shops. It's Friday late afternoon. to see an old man. And they see an old man who has two. Myrtle branches, and he's running in Benash Mashos. In other words, it's it's almost Shabbos. Amrulais, they said to him, Hani Lamalach, why are you carrying these myrtle branches? Amrulahu lechvot Shabbat, it's for covered Shabbos, right? To honor Shabbat. Vitizgelach bechad, why do you need two myrtle branches? Why isn't enough one? Chad keneged zachor. So he says, one is because the first uh, version of the Ten Commandments it says zachor during Shabbat, remember Shabbat. And the other one is because it says Shamor at Yom Shabbat. Right? There are two different versions of covered shops. Amr Leili Bray, so he says to his son, Look how, how Jewish people love mitzvot. And they're assuaged. They're, they're at peace, they get it, they're out in the world, everything works out. And that's the, it's not actually the end of the story because after they get out, he has a student. Uh, it's a longer discussion, but everything I'm about to share with you, you can then look at the continuation story and learn a lot from the continuation story. So what is going on here? This is crazy Gemara. This is crazy Gemara. What does this mean? So I'm going to um, stop the share so I can see you all again. Okay. Um, and I'm going to open up the... Uh, let me see if I can figure out how to open up the chat. Uh, one second. Um no, that's not it. Second. That's not it either. One second. I apologize. Um, I wish we could how to do this. One second. How do we open up the chat here? Tough. Hmm. Oh, here we go. Okay, now we open up the chat, right? So, so let's just review. First of all, what's this discussion that they had? You know, I had a, a, a many years ago when I was in yeshiva, when I was in Gush. So I was in the Machon Morim, the Teachers Institute, Yaakov Herzog Teachers Institute, probably the Harvard of Jewish Studies or Jewish Teachers Studies programs in the world. It's an incredible institution. And Professor Frankel, Jonah Frankel, who was a world authority, and I got it to, 
had smicha from Slabodka, taught in Hebrew University, sort of straddled both words, wrote a number of very important books on Agatha. And he gave us a shir on how to learn Agatha. That's really what got me thinking about these things, along with Ravami Talangush. And based on the classes he gave, I was able to look back at the shirim that I had from Ravami Tal and suddenly understand his methodology. But one of the things he shared with us is when you look at an Agatha and you're trying to discern what it's all about, there's always something, there's always one detail which just stands out as a crazy detail, right? And if you said to a student, do you remember that Kamara we did? He would say the one about, and usually the detail he remembers is the crazy detail. So if you could pick a crazy detail from this Agatha, what would it be? Right? I'll give you a second. Put it in the chat. What's the craziest detail from this Agatha? What do you think? Right? Anybody? I'm going to give you five seconds. If you don't get it, then the time's up. Anybody? Burying themselves. Oh, that's interesting. Burying themselves in the sand. Naked in the sand. That's interesting. I would have said the laser vision. And by the way, I have tested this theory out. I've asked students, you know, sometime later. They always said, oh, you mean the Gemara where they're burning people with their eyes. People just remember that detail. Right? So what is this all about? What is this Gemara about burying, burning people with their eyes? Why is Avshim Vayachai sentenced to death? If he's sentenced to death, why does he go hide in the base of Medrash? And what do I care that he's eating bread and water? And why does he then go to a cave? And why is he there for 12 years instead of 13 years? And why is the additional year 12 months? And what does that mean that Gehenna is only for 12 months? And what does it mean that they're naked in the sand and so on and so forth? Now, you can ask 15 questions on Agatha and try to come up with 15 answers, and that's nice. But one of the things that I learned from my rabbi, Mervriskin was a master at this, um, and he remains a master at this. And um, in some of the before you see this, if I had to pick a commentary that sort of almost defines this system, it would be the Abarbanel. When you study the Abarbanel on Chumash, he looks at a piece, he begins to read it through and asks just a ton of questions. And he actually numbers them. This is the first question, this is the second, this is the third. Sometimes you'll have a piece of the Abarbanel story and he'll give you 57 questions. And then afterwards he says, and here's how I understand this. And he starts to give you a treatise. And then the treatise says, and this answers the 53rd question, this answers the 37th question. And I don't know if he did this in his mind, but for me, I eventually learned I have to write down all the questions. And then when he's saying the 53rd, I can look it up and see if I got it right, et cetera. So the beauty is to be able to come up with one idea that responds to all the questions. And if you can come up with one idea and it really answers all the questions, then the likelihood is that you found truth. So what's really going on here? So one way of understanding this, and there are different commentators who allude to this, or if Cook alludes to this, Joseph alludes to this. You see, the issue with Avshom Bayochai is that he needs to change the way he's looking at the world. Rav Shimon Bar basically says that the world is black and white and the Romans are evil. And that's it. And you have to stay away from everything Roman because it's all evil. And by the way, it could be that there was a time where this was correct. But in the time of Rav Shimon Bar the Gemara seems to be alluding to the fact this is no longer correct. Now, it's important to understand something here. Who was Rav Shimon Bar and for that matter, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Huda, 
they were the students par excellence of Rabbi Akiva. So let's think about when they lived. They lived in the heyday of the Roman Empire. They the base of Mitzvah was destroyed, but it wasn't enough. The base of Mitzvah was destroyed after over sixty years of very painful exile. The Jews finally decided enough is enough, and there's another rebellion. And Rabbi Akiva believes that this time it'll work, and it makes sense. The first temple was destroyed. Seventy years later, they built the second base of Mitzvah. So the second base of Mikdash is destroyed. Now it's been almost 70 years, time to build the third base of Mikdash. And no less than Rabbi Akiva thinks that his one of his star pupils, Shimon Bar Koziva, also known as Shimon Bar Kochba, because Rabbi Akiva believed he was the son of a star. He was the North Star by which we would navigate. He was the Mashiach. He would be a Melech. We would come back out of our exile. And it proved, proved to be a disastrous mistake. Not only is it a disastrous mistake, but Rabbi Akiva himself is captured by the Romans for teaching Torah. And they torture him alive in front of his students. So now you're Rabbi Shimon Yochai. You're Rabbi Yossi. What do you do with this? Right? The second daf of all of Shas, Rabbi Yossi is wandering and he goes into a churva lit palel. Because it, and, and it says, Rabbi Yossi is telling this. I was once walking on the road and I went into one of the Churvot Yushalayim. Rabbi Yossi never says where he's going. Why do I need to go he's on a journey? Because that's exactly what's going on there. Rabbi Yossi's lost his way. Where are we going now? If Rabbi Akiva could be murdered, if the base of Mikdash is destroyed, if hundreds of thousands, some say as many as two million Jews are murdered by the Romans in five years because of the Rakhach rebellion, the Jewish people have to go underground and hide in caves, then where is the grand journey of the Jewish people? How do we survive this? And Rabbi Shimon Yochai, you know, um, uh, there are a number of Sfarim written about the history of the Tanaim. Um, uh, Rav Benny Lau wrote a magnificent book, actually a series on understanding who these uh, Mishnaic uh, rabbinic leaders were, the Tanaim. And it, the way he posits it, Rav Shimon Yochai um, needs to decide how to rebuild Judaism almost from the ground up. And there are many instances in the Gemara where you find Rav Shimon has one opinion, and later on is a completely different opinion because, because he has to change the way he looks at the world. So Rav Shimon believes that it's all or nothing. We don't, if Rome is going to rule the world, then we don't want to be part of that world. We don't have any interest in that world. We don't want their bridges. We don't want their, 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 their malls. So where does he go to hide? He goes to hide in the base marriage. Because that's how he deals with this. We should immerse ourselves in the world of Torah. That world holds no sway for us. We're not interested. It's just pure evil. Going to college, evil. Business, evil. Talking to scientists, evil. All evil. I'm going to hide in the basement. And I don't want to partake of the physical world. So all I need to eat is bread and water. I want to I, I'm not about the, the physical world. It's just a horrible place to be. Let's escape. The Rambam in Hilchot Deot, which is the, his laws of character development, it's actually the second set of halachot in the entire uh, Mishnah Torah, in the entire magnum opus of the Rambam, points out at the beginning of the third chapter, Perak Gimel, that uh, the Mishnah Perak says, pursuing honor, you know, being jealous for materialism, you know, wanting things, that takes you out of world. That's not a way to live life. So he says, you might therefore think that maybe you should take the opposite approach. Desist from everything physical. You know, live in poverty, don't get married, don't eat, 
you know, just suffer, live in sackcloth. He says, that's that's an unhealthy way to live life. That's what the, the Catholic monks do. And that's not Judaism. He says, the Nazir, who basically takes an oath for 30 days of, of, of desisting from the physical world, has to bring a carbon chattas. He has to bring a sin offering because he's made a mistake in pulling back from the world, at least according to the Rambam. So Rosh is making a mistake. So Hashem says, okay. So they go to hide in a cave. And in the cave, you want to live in a world of minimalism? Okay. So he lives in a world with nothing. He takes off his clothes. He's eating only carobs. Right? Carobs are food. The carob tree is a tree that takes forever to grow. It's about... Now, why does he take his son with him? Because of Shemuel wants to create a different future. It's all about the fact that I don't I don't want to be in the present. I don't want this world. I want to escape the present. Right? The Essenes who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, according to some, why did they encamp down in Qumran by the Dead Sea? Because they wanted to escape the world. They wanted to live an aesthetic life away from the physical realities that were so painful to them. They were the world of Hashem. to some extent. So he hides in a cave. And then Leo Navi comes and he stands at the entrance of the cave, just like he did by Rabbi Yossi. Now, what does Eliyahu Navi represent? Well, that's easy. Right, right. Navi is the one who will come and hasten redemption. And if you ever want to arrive at redemption, you can't get stuck in the cave. You don't enter the cave. You don't enter the world of destruction, Rabbi Yossi. You don't enter the cave, Rabbi Shemayuchai, if you ever want to be redeemed. You have to get out of the cave and be a partner in rebuilding the world. Now, what's the number 12? This is fascinating. So the Sfat Emet, otherwise known as the Sfat Emes, who was the Gera Rebbe, he was the grandson of the Chidush tremendous Torah scholar, um, is very sensitive to numbers. And he's one of the more modern, you know, he lived in the 1800s, um, says that every number represents an idea. Uh, for example, the number three means that there's a pattern because if you have two points on a piece of paper, no matter where they are, there's going to be a line. But as soon as you add a third point, the triangle shape will be completely different based on where each of the, those points is. So therefore, three represents that something significant is going on. Six in the world of nature is always incomplete. Six days of the week, the week is not over in six days. The Christians ended um, the Bible, its first chapter, at the end of the sixth day of creation, right? And Hashem saw everything was good, and they think that's the end. Judaism's parak, that end of that, is, is the end of right? Hashem completed everything he did on the seventh day. The world is not complete without the seventh day, without Shabbat. Six years you work your land, it's not complete until you have Shemitah, until you have the seventh year. There are many, many, many advantages to and, 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 and examples of this. Now, just as that is true at an individual level, the number six, and the number seven is completion within nature, so the number 12 is always incomplete because it's two times six on a global scale. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. Um, how many tribes are there? Okay. How many tribes are there? Right. So, you know, if you if you ask even a rabbi, say, well, there were 10 tribes in the north. They'll say, yeah. And the 10 tribes were exiled. So what? There are only two tribes left. And he'll say, yes. And he'll be wrong. Because there are not 12 tribes. 12 always becomes 13. Yosef has two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. There are 13 tribes. Levi is different, so that's why we get confused. Right? Um, a girl is not by mitzvah, 
at the end of 12 years. She's bat mitzvah at the beginning of her 13th. It's 12 in a day, right? The, the Sfasema says that the letters Gimel, which is the third letter of the alphabet, and Tet, which is the ninth, which of course adds up to 12, never appear next to each other in the entire Torah. And what are those two letters when they're together? That's a get, which is a divorce document. Torah calls the divorce document a Sefer Kritut, which is a book of cutting off, separation. That's what a get is. We have the, the, the tradition of a get, of a divorce document, is Allah Moshe Misinai. It comes to us all the way back from Moshe, according to tradition. Uh, there are many traditions that have to do with a get that Talmud discusses. Uh, it has to be written by a scribe on a parchment. The parchment and writing has to be the same in order, you know, you don't just write something for practice and then it has to be written for the proper mitzvah. So one of the traditions of a get is it has to be a certain number of lines. You want to guess how many lines it has to be? Twelve. Because that's incomplete. Separation. Rav Shemabachai is in there for 12 years because he's trying to separate himself from the world. And he goes back for 12 months because he still wants to be separated from the world. Right? What's Gehenna? This is fascinating. There are four stages. I am really going to oversimplify a complex idea, which could be its own uh, shear. Uh, if you want to see a great write-up on this, Rav Vadin Steinsaltz in his, uh, I think it's called The Twelve Petaled Rose. It's one of the better books to get an introduction to Kabbalah, if that's your speed. I'm not really a Kabbalist, but but he talks about the four different stages that an Neshama goes through after it somehow uh, loses its influence on the physical world, because the physical always ends, so the body ends, that's called death. No reason to assume that the Neshama ends. Right? The physical is all those things about us that are limited. You know, like, uh, I mean, this is, you know, limited. It's here, it's not there. But the spiritual aspects of who we are, the capacity to love, to give, to be kind, those have no limits, and therefore they don't end. So what is the Neshama experience? So the third stage of what a Neshama experience is called Gehinom. And Gehinom, according to the authorities, the Geshe Chaim talks about this, is the process whereby the Neshama, which was affected by being somehow accessible in the physical world, it, 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 it acquires a certain level of Tum'ah, of impurity, and now the Neshama is going to sort of somehow re-experience its connection to the divine, to Nishmataim. But in order to do that, it has to lose that impurity. So Gehenim, unlike the, 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 I don't know, Catholicism, I'm not an expert on Catholicism, but Catholic teaching seems to suggest there's this concept of eternal damnation. Judaism does not believe in eternal damnation or fires of hell or anything silly like that, right? Judaism believes that Gehenim is a process. And that process is, is sort of purifying the neshama, which was affected by the impurities of this world. So it's ready to be back in a different reality connected to the divine. By the way, sometimes, at least according to Kabbalistic tradition, a, a, a neshama has such a rough journey in this world, it's not ready. Gehenim isn't enough. It has to come back and do other things. And that's a whole complicated discussion. So now I understand why the term Gehenim is being used here. There's something impure about the way Rav Shem is looking at the world. When he gets out of the cave the first time, he, he can't handle it. He thinks that everything physical is just a waste of time. Why would you sit and play the stock market when you could learn Torah? So he's burning it up. There's an entire portion of the Jewish community today that seems to believe that if you're not sitting and learning in yeshiva, you're just impure. And it, it's fascinating actually to see that in our current reality, a not insignificant portion of the Haredi community is starting to realize there's something very holy about boys who aren't sitting and learning Torah. 
and and they realize that they've missed something. And I think that's just a wonderful reality that we're starting to see. It's mamash, exactly what's going on in this Gemara. So the second time, Roshim Varechai comes out. What does he see? He sees an old person running. Now, an old person running is interesting. Why do we have an old person running? Why don't you have a young person running? In order for an old person to run, he has to be incredibly driven and motivated. Right? That the, the physical world is meaningful if, if the motivation is pure. So why are you running? Are you running to plow the field? Or are you running Lechot Shabbat? He's taking the physical world and he's utilizing it Lechot Shabbat for Shabbat. And what is Zachor and Shemor? Why does he have two mortal branches? So the rabbis tell us that Zachor and Shemor represent two different aspects of Shabbat. Shemor are the lotases, the negatives. Don't use electricity. Don't drive your car. Don't listen to music. Don't use the phone. All the don'ts. Zachor are, 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 are all the positives. Now, Shamor creates a vacuum, right? It's only once you've gotten off your phone and let go of your television and, and taken a step off the world that you're ready to experience Shabbat. But if, if it's all about don't and you don't fill that vacuum with meaning, you're missing what Shabbat is all about, right? So in the cave, I've stepped off the physical world, but I haven't, but, but that's not where you're supposed to be. The question is how you take what's in the cave and invest it into the spiritual world, into the physical world. And that's exactly the conclusion of this Gemara. That we can, we can, it, it, it's okay to spend some time in the base medrash, learning Torah. But if the Torah doesn't have an impact on the world, then you've missed the entire point. And what fascinates me the most about this Gemara is no less than Rabbi Shimon Ve'yochai has to, has to, has to completely change the way he looks at the world. There are moments in time, and this was a, a, a watershed period in Jewish history, when Rabbi Akiva believed that we needed to fight and, and we could fight the Roman Empire. And Rabbi Yochum ben Zakeh, before him, understood, no, that, that period has passed. We're in a different stage now. And it takes 100 years for the Jewish world to realize right now is not about armies. It's not about fighting it's, it's about developing. It's about growing. It's about being a role model. It's about being an impact on the world. And isn't it interesting that after 2,000 years, we're finally starting to come around. And I would venture to say that just as in this Gemara, you know, there's nothing sadder than seeing a world and recognizing that other people just don't see it. And then gradually, other people begin to see it and it pains you. And, and this can take many facets. You know, I was sitting with my son, and, you know, names are coming up. Jibalia, Betlahia, you know, Sajia. I was in all these places. And I did all that I did in the army. And our, my generation did all that. Because we hoped our children wouldn't have to go there. And so on the one hand, there you are. You're back in that reality. It's painful. Right? But part of what's painful is, it doesn't take a genius to realize you can't make peace with Hamas. It, it doesn't take a genius to realize the two states, it just doesn't work. It's not just that it doesn't work because ideologically this land belongs to Am Yisrael. It doesn't work because there's no one to talk to. So will the world begin to see a different reality? Will they recognize? And until they do, right? as long as, I don't know, Joe Biden still thinks that we can appease the Iranians, he's living in the past. That world has sailed. And if he doesn't get that, Iran, in other words, Hashem will use Iran to show that to him. 
You know what? You don't believe the ship is sailed? Fine. Let's see if the Houthis can shoot missiles at aircraft carriers. You got to ask yourself. That's nuts. What are these Yemenites thinking? They're going to take on the USS Eisenhower. They're out of their minds because they're seeing a different reality. And we have to learn to see that the world is not black and white. There are different ways to see and different things we need to see. And ultimately, I think if you had to choose the most important message, you know, we take life for granted. We make assumptions as to what tomorrow will bring based on today. If anything, this reality is teaching us is that we have no idea what tomorrow will bring. You know, my, my, my son and my son, when they got out of Gaza, and they told them, you know, I mean, this was the basically the first brigade that went into Aza, among the first brigades. And they've been, I mean, the things they've been doing for the last three months are just mind-boggling to me. And now they're being given a breather. But they said to him, you know, you'll be out for a month, assuming that everything goes as we expect. Now, they don't know what to do with that. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean in a month we're going back to Aza? Does that mean in a month we're going up north to Lebanon? Does that mean in a month we'll see? So what do you do with it? You don't you don't know what to do. My son has to start a psychometry. Can you start a course of study? Can you go back to work? Or do you realize, you know what? This is the way the world really is all along. Hashem runs the world, right? I mean, if I mentioned once in one of these classes, if you had a really religious, Jewish religious newspaper, it wouldn't say that, uh, you know, Joe Biden has sent air, aircraft carriers to the, to the Red Sea, for which we are grateful. It would say Hashem has decided that Joe Biden will send aircraft carriers to the Red Sea. Do we see that world? Do we understand that there's only today? What happened yesterday is gone. What happened tomorrow, not here yet. But here now, this is today. I was sitting Friday night. It's the first time since our daughter's wedding in September that our whole family, just my kids, I'm not talking about relatives in America, that all four of my kids with their spouses and our grandkids, that we were all around one Shabbos table. I don't remember the last time it took three and a half months for four months for us to do that. It was incredible. And we were talking about making a Sudato Daya, you know, a festive Thanksgiving Suda meal, just to be thankful to Hashem that, 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 that they both got out when you consider what they went through. They're both officers in commando units and Baruch Hashem. And then we said, like, how could you make a Sudato Daya? There's still a war going on. There are unfortunately new names almost every day. There's still hostages there. It didn't feel right. So I said to my wife, you know what? Everybody's coming for Shabbos. Friday night dinner will be a Sudat Odea. And my son had the same thought. So he went out and brought, uh, he found the only kosher whiskey in a sherry cask that's made in Israel. And he brought it for Shabbos. So we're going to celebrate Israel, right? And we had a Sudat Odea. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Yesterday's gone. But there's now. We learn to appreciate the now. And that seems to be part of the message of this Gemara. Can we learn to see the world a different way? And I'll just end with this thought. How do we do that? How do we learn to appreciate the world as it is? How do we learn to appreciate that the physical world is valuable, but so is the spiritual? That's the secret of Shabbat. Shabbat is not seven days. It's one day. Six days a week, you're supposed to work. Right? That's not just, you can work if you want to. That's, I give you a world. What are you going to do with it? Right? That's the Datilumi world that's, that's saying you have a responsibility to build the world. You can't just sit in the base members. Take a day on Shabbat and pause. What is all this work about? Why are we doing this? What does it mean? You know, we have a safer Torah in my 
little, we have a little Miklat minion on our block. And there was a boy named Max Steinberg, who was a Golani soldier, who was killed in the terrible tragedy of the Nagmash. If you remember, there was a battalion commander who went into Aza in Suketan in 2014 with an armored personnel carrier that was like from Vietnam era. And they sat an RPG at it, I think, and they sliced through it like butter, and they blew it up, and all the boys inside were killed. And there was a big to-do afterwards. How could he go in with that armored personnel? One of the boys who was killed was Max Steinberg. His parents come from Los Angeles, um, and, 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 and it was devastating for them. You could only imagine. So I've stayed in touch with them, and they dedicated a Sefer Torah, um, and they wanted it to go to one of the units of Golani, in Max's memory, and it's a small little Sefer Torah. You could literally, it's its like the size of your forearm. But it's very complicated, it turns out, to donate a Torah scroll to an army unit because you're not supposed to make private donations and all sorts of technical reasons. And if you donate a Sefer Torah to one unit, you have to donate it to all the units. It's very complicated. They haven't been able to cut through the bureaucracy. And so meanwhile, because someone they're close with is in our show, in our little minion, I mean, there's like 20 of us, it's been sitting in our show. And a number of years ago, I asked them if I could take it with us with a right to Poland, and we brought it to Poland. And it was an extremely powerful experience to bring that saber to Poland. Well, this week, last Shabbat, for the first time, um, one of my neighbors has two sons in the army. One of them is a battalion commander, and one of them is a, a, a soldier in a unit that goes into combat zones to bring out the wounded. It's a serious unit. And they met up. And they arranged to bring the Sefer Torah with them so that they could, they could have a Sefer Torah for, for Shabbat. And they took a picture of the two of them with this Torah scroll from our little Miklat that's in Aza, where he was killed. Right? And they sent it to the family. Can you imagine? Like, just a totally different way of looking at the world. So there's a lot more to talk about here. Um, if anybody has any questions, I'm just going to look... Um, um let's see one second okay um yes the timing of when Eliyahu shows up was based on when the decree was revoked but in other words 12 was the time when incompletion is done are you ready to be complete um and like i said burying themselves in the sand was indeed sort of part of them desiring to to step away from the physical world um and could it all have been a bad dream look it all could have been a dream. by the way it's important to notice to, to note, uh, the Vilna Gaon talks about this, the, the Rosh Bam. Um, the purpose of these Agadot is not history. The question here is not, did this conversation actually take place? It may have. I'm sure many of the Agadot did take place, and I'm sure some of them didn't. It's not the point. The question is not whether, like when Alexander the Great goes up to the heavens, does battle with the angels. It's not a question of whether that really happened. If Hashem wanted it to happen, I mean, you know, I mean, Hashem causes, uh, I don't know, a bush to burn and, and not burn. If Hashem wants Alexander in heaven, he'll be in heaven. That's not the point of the Agatha. The question is, what the message? What am I meant to learn, sort of, right, going into this? Um, and um, so that's interesting. Why is Avelut, somebody notes this, why is Avelut, why is mourning 12 months exactly? Because your, your, your life is now incomplete. And at the end of your Avelut, and this is only for your parents, but at the end of your avilut, you're ready to re-enter the world. It's exactly the same idea, right? Um, okay, food for thought. I, I just want to tell everybody I love this. Thank you all for signing in. If anybody has further questions, you know where to find me. Not so hard. And uh, I love doing this. So thanks for listening in. 
and I'm wishing everybody a, a good week. And Bezrat Hashem, we should all know peace soon. And the soldiers should, should come home safely. And the hostages especially should be released safely. And Amen. the wounded should be healed. And the family should be comforted. And Bezrat Hashem, we should know peace soon. Amen. I love to everybody. Thank you.